Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and I'm your host, Maddie Gobo. I'm the events manager here at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. Uh, Just a quick update on the store. We're still doing our same uh, weekday hours, 11 to 7, and weekend hours, 10 to 8. We have upped our store capacity, so you won't have to wait in such a long line anymore. It's exciting. Um, But we do ask that you still wear a mask and socially distance and be conscientious of other people in the store and our booksellers. We're all doing our best to get through these lingering months of the pandemic, um, and hopefully we'll be welcoming bigger crowds back into the store someday soon. I really miss doing real in-person events. But for now, we're having lots of amazing conversations here on the podcast and on our Crowdcast channel, and today is no exception. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this one because both of these books have been uh, catching my eye for weeks, and I'm just really glad to have both of the authors here today to be in conversation. Um, So my featured guests today are Jana Larson and Jasmina Barrera. Uh, Jana Larson is the author of Real Bay, a cinematic essay, and Hasmina Barrera is the author of On Lighthouses. So they're going to be talking about both of the books today. Um, but I wanted to say just a few words about Real Bay since it's just out. Uh, Real Bay is equal parts memoir, mystery, reclaimed screenplay, and travelogue. It charts Jana Larson's unusual journey toward understanding another woman's life. Um, and you may know a little bit about this story if you have seen. Uh, the Coen Brothers film Fargo. Um, certainly, uh, a, an ins- this was an inspiration for that film, and um, I'm really excited to hear more about it. But first, I'm going to give you the formal introduction of both of our guests so you get to know them a little bit better. All right, so Jana Larson holds an MFA in creative nonfiction writing from Hamline University, where she studied with Barry Jean Borich author of My Lesbian Husband, such a good title, Patricia Weaver Francisco, uh, author of Telling, a Memoir of Rape and Recovery, and Jim Moore, author of Lightning at Dinner. She has an MFA in filmmaking from the University of Southern California, San Diego, and a BA in anthropology from the University of California, Santa Cruz. As a filmmaker, she has received awards from the Princess Grace Foundation and the Minnesota State Arts Board, and shown her work at festivals and the Walker Arts Center. She lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And in conversation with Jana is Jasmina Barrera. She was born in Mexico City in 1988. She was a fellow at the Foundation for Mexican Letters. Her book of essays, Cuerpo Extraño, 
also known as Foreign Body, was awarded the Latin American Voices Prize from Literal Publishing in 2013. She has published her work in various print and digital media, such as the Paris Review, El Mal Pensante, Words Without Borders, Nexos, Letras Libres, and Electric Literature. She has a master's degree in creative writing in Spanish from New York University, which she completed with the support of a Fulbright grant. Her book on lighthouses was published in 2020 by Two Lines Press. It's beautiful, you guys should check it out. Uh, she is editor and co-founder of Ediciones Antilope, and she lives in Mexico City. Jana and Jasmina, welcome to the program. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much, Maddie. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you, it really is a pleasure. Yeah, this is great. Um, so could you first tell our listeners where you're joining us from? I like to kind of situate them in space and time. So I'm in Mexico City um, in my living room. <laughs> and I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota in my office looking out on my backyard on a beautiful spring day. <laughs> and I'm in West Hollywood in my living room looking out at my big pepper tree <laughs> in my front yard. Um, so this is going to be kind of a conversation between the two of you about both of your books. Um, so I first want to give our listeners a little bit of context for what those books are. And I'm going to ask you the horrible question of the elevator pitch. Um, would you both give me like a, a quick summary of what your books are about? And, um, you know, maybe like, what is the gist? You go, Jenna. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, my story, you know, uh, the book tells the story of Takako Konishi, who's a Japanese woman who ostensibly committed suicide um, after traveling to North Dakota to uh, find the ransom money that was buried by Steve Buscemi's character at the end of the movie Fargo. But it's also really uh, sort of charts the journey of my own creative process and sort of the, <laughs> the difficulties one encounters when they're obsessively pursuing sort of the impossible story. Um, and so it's sort of, that's sort of the arc of the film is all the various iterations that the, the film I'm trying to make about Takako take. It's such a beautiful book, Jenna. And <laughs> I just wanted to say. And um, mine on Lighthouses, it's uh, a hybrid genre book, which makes us chronicle and the uh, essay writing and a bit of fiction even. And it's a fragmentary book that goes looking out for lighthouses, uh, real lighthouses. So I travel to lighthouses and write about those travels. And it also, um, it's a, sort of like a collection of the representation of lighthouses in literature, in art and history and culture in general. So it's a, a bit of a mix of all of that. I, I like to think of it sort of like a cabinet of wonders, like these kind of collections where you have a very strange things mixed together, uh, sort of like a collage book. I love it that. also is super, it's super, they're both of the books I think are, you know, essays in the true sense of the word and that, you know, through the meditation on another subject, you really get this intimate portrait of the writer. So, um, I mean, Yasmina's book is also just gorgeous. The prose is so simple and 
I really, it's, it's just a beautiful book. I always want to call it a little book because there's something so sort of tender and delicate about on lighthouses. Thank you so much. Yes, you're right. And I'm thinking that they are also essays in a broader sense of the word, because I love that word, essay. You know, it, it, it's so provocative and evocative, and it has this idea of experiment and of process and of, um, yeah, you know, um, I, I forgot the word, but like, um, essays like in a performative uh, way as well. So I think um, both of our books have a little bit of all of that as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love about both of your books that they are uh, unafraid, unafraid to take bits and pieces of different strategies and different forms um, in service of this bigger, these bigger questions, these complicated questions. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what the hybrid form meant to you in, in the writing of these books. Yes, well, um, for me, when I'm writing, I always think about books instead of genres. I like to think about projects and not um, think so much about the prejudices and the restrictions we always have in mind when we think uh, I'm writing a novel, I'm writing short story, I'm writing. And that for me, essay writing is sort of like an anti-genre sort of writing. Uh, every book that is impossible to classify, I classify it as essay writing. So <laughs> I always like to take um, as much liberty as I can and I, I I often tell this story that when I was in primary school, I was in a very hippie um, sort of school and they used to ask us to write um, textos libres, which would be free texts, something like that. <laughs> and um, that meant just writing about anything you wanted in any form you wanted. You had like 30 minutes and that was from, I was five years old uh, until I was 12. And um, we did that very often. And then we also had a small a print. Um, what, what do you call it? Uh, it's a, uh, one of these old printing um, press. presses. Thank you. A printing press where uh, we would print those, those texts. And we did small, beautiful books out of them. Um, so for me, literature has always been um, linked to that expression of freedom and playing and just um, unrestricted, un unrestricted um, joy, I would say, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, for me, I don't know if it was such an allegiance to creating a hybrid text. I feel like I, I arrived at the form fairly late, you know, sort of, it was, I really did spend a lot of time trying to make a film and yes it was a lyric film it was you know I kind of come out of the tradition of experimental and allegiance to experimental filmmaking and filmmaking as an experiment um, but it wasn't until you know I finally was writing the book and actually had many fragments like so much material that I had accumulated through this you know long process 
and, you know, was literally cutting it apart and pasting things. I had pages strewn all over the living room. And it was really just, it was in the end, kind of a, almost like a, making a collage or, or editing a film, the way I pieced the book together. Um, and so it, 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 now it feels inevitable that it would have ended up that way, but it's certainly not where I started. I like the resonances in what you both just said. Um, you both used the word collage. Uh, and I think I think that is a form that we don't get to see very often in writing. Um, and there there are so many benefits to it. There's so many unexpected kind of vibrations between things that you don't realize until you put them side by side or you rearrange a narrative um, into a non-chronological sequence. Um, and I think it's also no coincidence that both of your books involve travel and movement. Um, could you talk a little bit about like, Hasmina, I'm particularly interested in your, in your journey to all of these different sites, but then John, I'm also interested in the journey that the, uh, that Takako Konishi took um, to this, to the snowbank and why you, why you felt that that was something you wanted to arrange the book around. Oh, you would like me to start? Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> journeys, um, journeys do kind of automatically create an arc and narrative interest. And so I think um, sometimes just the movement of the book following a, you know, a journey, there's a great tradition in cinema of the road movie. And I do sort of think of my book as a road movie. It starts with me getting on a bus and taking the exact same journey that Takako took from Minneapolis on a Greyhound to Bismarck, North Dakota, and then on another Greyhound from Fargo, and then interviewing all the people along the way, and then in, spend some time in San Diego, where I'm living at the time, uh, trying to edit the film. And then, you know, the last section, last third of the book, I traveled to uh, Japan, and I live in uh, Tokyo, and then later in Takako's hometown. And so um, I'm both, it's sort of, uh, I think the film is like two, like a reverse journey in a way where Takako flew from Japan to Minnesota, and I go from Minnesota to Japan. And um, so there's, this, there's all these sort of reflections and refractions of my story vis-a-vis -vis Takako's story and our respective journeys. And um, I think it's, it's sort of what allows uh, the book to be, I think, I'd like to say a little bit of a page turner, like there is a sense of this compelling drive forward while at the same time, you know, allowing all of these interesting like collage elements and intersections to happen. I don't know, did that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Hasmina, do you want to talk a little bit about travel? Sure. Um, I think in, in my case, there's a strange paradox because the book talks about lighthouses and lighthouse keepers, uh, which actually don't move. <laughs> they stay in the lighthouse and they are uh, sort of like a symbol of isolation and even claustrophobia at times, you know? And um, so the book re reflects about that and uh, it creates essays about that, but also around 
the travels I make to lighthouses and also about the sailors that move towards lighthouses. You know, lighthouses are often the, the end of a travel for, for many people uh, or the beginning as well. Um, so, so I think there's a, there's a contrast in these, these two movements that I've been thinking a lot also throughout these, uh, these times, which are so strange of isolation and enclosure. And, um, and I think it's also important for the book, the idea of literature as a travel, uh, books as tr travels of the mind. And um, yeah, I think it's Philip, Philip Lopate, who I, I really like, who says something like, um, essay writing is following the, the travel of someone's mind. It's different words, but <laughs> following uh, a mind of someone traveling. And um, I like to think of literature as something sort of like, I like a travel, um, traveling with someone through his words or her, her words. And um, yeah. <laughs> That's such a great quote. And I think we can all really relate to that because I didn't go anywhere this year except in books. <laughs> so, Yeah, and also a lighthouse keepers had so, so much time for reading and writing as well. And so they are often great, great, great stories about, about, and, um, about lighthouse keepers and that they are very good uh, readers, but often very obsessive readers even. <laughs> Hasmina, do you have a, a passage you, that might be relevant to this topic that you might want to read? Yeah, I can find it. <laughs> Take your time. I will uh, smoothen out okay. this transition. <laughs> there's, a, there's a passage uh, that talks a bit about, that I think resonates with the situation we're in. So I can read that and about what we were talking it says, I live on an island on the fifth floor of a red building. The plaque in the hallway says it's the fifth, but for reasons no one has been able to explain to me, there are two second floors. I rarely leave this brick tower. When I do, it's almost always at night or to visit lighthouses. There are four windows, two have bars that were installed a while ago when a burglar managed to get into the neighboring apartment. The other windows look out onto a brick wall a meter away. That wall is so high that looking up, you can't see the sky and neither can you see the ground below. The gap narrows and the bricks are lost in darkness. I've never suffered from claustrophobia, but I sometimes feel an uncontainable need to see the horizon. In this city of tall buildings, that horizon is difficult to find. In order to see anything at any distance, you have to go up to a roof, to the river, or to one of the streets that cut across the whole island. From time to time, I do one of those things. When I was taking art classes, I learned that my mind often follows the lead of my eyes, and if I restrict my gaze for too long, my thoughts become myopic. Another problem with the apartment is the darkness. In my bedroom and in the living room, a gray muted cloud daylight filters through the windows. The only plant I've had here died after only a few weeks. I spend the whole day bathed in artificial light and to see the sun, 
if the sky outside is clear and there's no one else home, I have to press myself up against the bars of the other window and search it out above the buildings. I wonder what will become of me spending so much time without direct sunlight. I wonder if I'll turn into one of those blind transparent fish that live in subterranean rivers and caves. It feels as if my nerves are a little more sensitive than the norm. I faint at the prick of a needle. Almost all strong emotions give me a headache. Perhaps it's that I'm not thick skinned and people seem a permanent source of danger. Pen, sorry, pain has this ability to become stronger when you think about it. If I concentrate hard on a part of my body, it ends up hurting. If I concentrate hard on myself, I hurt. For instance, right now, as I write this. By contrast, when I visit lighthouses, when I read or write about lighthouses, I leave myself behind. Some people like gazing into wells, that gives me vertigo. But with lighthouses, I stop thinking about myself. I move through space to remote places. I also move through time toward a past that I'm aware I idealize when solitude was easier. And in moving back in time, I distance myself from the tastes of my own age. When lighthouses are linked with unfashionable adjectives like romantic and sublime, it's difficult to talk about the topics generally associated with lighthouses, solitude, madness. Those of us who try have no option but to accept ourselves as quaint. If I focus my attention on myself, the pain is magnified. On the other hand, when I think of myself in relation to a lighthouse, I feel brand new and so tiny I'll, I almost vanish. What I feel for lighthouses is the complete opposite of passion, or at least it's a passion for anesthesia. Okay, I'll stop there. And if you want to cut it, because it, I think it was too long. <laughs> so no, you'll, I think you'll try it out. <laughs> I think that was perfect. Thank you. It was a beautiful passage. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I, when I was reading your book, Hasmina, I wrote after that passage, now I am totally on board with this book. <laughs> <laughs> Because it happened sort of early, this this section, yeah. And um, I also think it illuminates uh, this thing we have in common, um, uh, our books have in common, which is that it's both about an obsession with something, but it's really an attempt to try and illuminate uh, sort of like a feeling, uh, some kind of feeling that we can't quite understand um, and some sort of way of perceiving the world um, that we don't understand. And so the journey is as much to illuminate the subject as really to sort of shed light on this, this topic that we find utterly fascinating and perplexing kind of. Uh, um, yeah. And that like, I think neither of us really get to the end of that sort of fascination. Whenever I hear you, Hasmina, talk about lighthouses, I'm like, oh my God, this, the obsession continues. Like you're able to sort of, you know, in the middle of a conversation say, well, and that's kind of like lighthouses, X, Y, and Z. <laughs> sort of 
you know, when, when something is an obsession, like the whole world can eventually sort of tie into that obsession, or I don't know if you find that true, but... Yes, definitely. And I also think I'm not, I, I don't know if I'm going too far with this, but I would say there is a, there is a tiny thing about um, heartbrokenness <laughs> about these books. There is sort of like this underlying love story. I, I think in mine, it's so subtle that many people don't even notice it. But this is a really sad book for me. <laughs> I think when I wrote it, I was really, really sad and, and I was heartbroken. And so this, in a way, for me, it was a, a way of trying to write about that without writing about that. I think you were a bit more straightforward about it, but still <laughs> you managed to get it very subtle, I would say. What do you think about that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's obviously maybe more central to my story because I'm writing about a woman who perhaps committed suicide, or, you know, people say might have committed suicide because she was heartbroken. And then in my story, the love, my love interest in the story um, is often taking long breaks from the relationships because of relationships with other women. And so, um, and so I'm sort of writing in the shadow of heartbreak and also but I think it's less about heartbreak and more about tr trying to figure out what it means to continue on sort of like underneath the heartbreak or within the heartbreak. What does it mean to continue walking your own path and finding your own, own path, even when you're sort of overwhelmed by sadness? Yeah, of course. And the finding in the world uh, a place of escape from that heartbreak. Right, like uh, finding in others, in other stories, in other places, in the uh, a way out of yourself and of that pain, right? which which is something that one of my favorite things about literature that it allows you that even if for a second, you know? and a film as well, definitely a filmmaking, yeah, yeah, definitely. I was going to say that that is part of you know, sort of in the book. I think both my character and Takako's character. Their, their great desire is, is difficult to describe, but it has something about being subsumed into the world of a film. And it's like, that's something, it's kind of about obsession, but it's also about what stories can do for you, where they, they give you meaning, they give you context, and they kind of like even bring beauty into your life and kind of hold you up um, when nothing else seems to. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So I want to let the two of you kind of take it from here, um, if that's all right. Do either of you have burning questions for each other about your books? Yeah, uh, I would like to ask you, Jana, um, you started writing this book how long ago? How, how long has it been the whole process of writing and publishing this book? Because it feels like a, like a really uh, a lifetime book. I don't know if, if that's <laughs> correct, but like a, the book of a lifetime, I would say. Maybe that's an effect of the book. Maybe it's not, it's not the case, but I, I would like to know. Yeah, I'm swallowing hard as so I get prepared to answer this question because uh, I probably worked on this project and, and like you, Hasmina, like it's, it's a project rather than 
a book. And so it took many forms over a lifetime, <laughs> really. So it started as a documentary film um, that I worked on for a couple of years. And then and as it sort of became uh, more of an attempt to make a, a more fictionalized film, and then I set that down and then I went to Japan and again, attempted some research. And then I set that down and then it became a book. And so it probably took, um, you know, maybe 10 years in total, but over a span of nearly maybe 17 or 18 years wow. that I worked on this project in, in various iterations. And what so was it, it that you decided like, now it's done? Yeah, well, um, I was told maybe five years before I was done that it was done. <laughs> so it was really um, at the urging of, uh, you know, my friends and then finally my editor to say, it's done, it's, it's, it's finished. You, you were finished a long time ago, it's, it's finished. And, and so I think, you know, the struggle with something that obsesses you is that it's, it's never done. You keep thinking that you're gonna solve the puzzle and somehow be released from the obsession or at least that's the way it was for me and and so it was sort of making peace with the book doing a good job of representing precisely that and I think it does that um so now, now that I'm <laughs> holding it in my hand it's done <laughs> yeah I, I totally get it um I think they these are as you say, kinds of books that you could keep on writing forever, right? And I would say in my case, it has to do more with wanting to write something else than with actually thinking you've, you've finished the book, right? Like uh, I, I think I had to finish it because I, I needed to write something else, but it, I could have gone on forever because also, as you said, these are not obsessions you just abandon. I mean, if they are true passions I would I will always love lighthouses and I still collect things regarding lighthouses and say maybe if one day I have the time I can write part two of this book but <laughs> not right now because I have to write something else but maybe one day <laughs> do you feel like that or do you feel like it's it's over this story for you well, I feel like right now I am sort of working on part two of the book. It's no longer about Takako Konishi, but there are threads of it that continue and I think are just themes in my work. Um, but I, I think you also addressed this, Yasmina, or in, in, at the end of your book, when, when you sort of say, I, I'm not going to be able to find the passage right now, but maybe you will. Um, where it's almost like you decide to stop writing the book almost out of a concern and like a way of caring for yourself, understanding that there's something dark about your obsession and for the well-being of yourself, you need to move on and sort of wrap up this chapter of your life. And certainly I felt that way too, that, the, that there is something dark about being obsessed with the story of a woman who was searching for, I don't know what, and in the end committed suicide and there and it does you know represent a fairly dark chapter of my own life too writing the book and and i do have that feeling like nope it's time to wrap you know put a bow on this obsession and move on to something 
to something else uh, as a way of caring for myself, really. <laughs> yes, I, I remember the passage from my book because um, it happened when I realized that many writers wrote books about lighthouses before committing suicide. <laughs> so I was thinking about that and said, mm, maybe I have to stop now. <laughs> and uh, But I, I also wanted to ask you, your book is sort of also about your relationship with filmmaking, is that right? And is this a, was this book also a way for you to reconcile with filmmaking and with the, with the impossibility of doing the film you wanted? Did you find sort of like a, like a peace at the end of it? Or is, there, is, is it still a problematic relationship? Because I, I heard right now that you've, you've done films that, which I haven't seen, but I really want to see. And uh, so did this book cure something in your relationship with filmmaking by writing it or didn't it didn't no no I think it did you know uh I remember because I was a film student so obviously the the book is told through the lens of somebody who's completely also obsessed with films and is completely immersed not just in studying films but in trying to solve the problem of how do I make this film? And will this approach work? Will this approach work? How about this approach? And I love this film. So I'm kind of telling the story through these films that I, I find sort of told the story, a version of this story in a way. And so I'm studying that deeply, trying to solve this problem. Um, and I think through the, you know, the obsession with this one story and finding out how to do it, my relationship with film was damaged. <laughs> There was a while where, you know, if I was watching a movie, it was just some, you know, not just some, but like a Hollywood movie that was strictly for entertainment purposes only. And I found that since finishing this book, I'm suddenly in love with film again. And I'm really excited to see the films that people are putting out and so inspired by, you know, new filmmakers and, I don't know if I'll make another film, but I feel sort of free to love filmmaking in a way that it's unencumbered by the um, difficulties of this project, if that makes sense. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> Is there a passage you would like to read, maybe, that has to do with this? Hmm. Well, oh, sure. Yeah. Look at that. I just opened the, <laughs> the book to one of my bookmarks and I think it's relevant. Um, I mean, it sort of talks about, uh, it's, it, it, it occurs about midway through the book. And uh, so I've abandoned the idea of making a documentary film. I've written a script and I've decided to hold a technical rehearsal where I actually shoot part of one of the scenes for the film um, and the technical rehearsal doesn't go well. Uh, the shoot doesn't go well. And so in this section, I'm sort of rethinking and reconsidering my plans for the film. And I think it sort of addresses, you know, the, some of the difficulties I'm having making the film sort of midway through the book. So this is on page 135. After the challenges of the technical rehearsal and the loss of your actor, you take a step back. It's clear that, though you need to make a film, Takako's story is more than that. 
It's not just that you've come to see in Takako a parallel version of yourself or that the questions you're trying to answer about her life aren't so different from the ones you're trying to answer about yours. Like, who was she? Why did she become so obsessed with this movie? Why did she make this last fateful trip? Was she trying to enter the film itself to merge her own destiny with that of the characters of the film with something else? How did she get so lost? It's that the story about Takako seems to be like a gateway, a way through to the other side of this, whatever it is, a way to be done with it once and for all. Takako, whatever her motivations, seems to have been treading the line between reality and fiction, hoping to move from one side to the other. But why? You think again that the answer to this question is somehow encoded in the name of the place she was trying to get to, Real Bay. Did she mean real as in a place that felt more real? Was there something about her life that felt unreal? Or did she mean a real as in a film or a fishing reel, a mechanism to reel her into another dimension, something that appeared in the stars that could, could project her into another world, maybe the fictional world of the film? This desire, this longing, was the subject of the film you wanted to make about Takako. You imagine it as a pressure, a push to get away, to be outside this moment, to be other than this, to be taken up or consumed by something else, to disappear, to become unrecognizable. The film itself would be a doorway. It would carry you to what? And how do you make a film like that? In your first screenwriting class, you tried to write a film about a woman who was full of longing and at the same time didn't know what she wanted. Your screenwriting teacher would hand back your scripts with the question, what does she want? Scrawled in, in large red letters across the front. Until she wants something, he would say, drawing out the vowels. You haven't got a character or a story. Stories are about characters who want something. Maybe in the end she doesn't get it, but it's desire that sets a story in motion. You went back and forth with him on this until finally, when you wouldn't give in, he suggested you create other characters who want something to juxtapose the main characters' non-specific longing against the backdrop of their desires. But that isn't what you wanted to do. You didn't want to bury your characters' amorphous yearning inside a narrative about normal people whose desires drive the story toward its inevitable conclusion. You wanted the stasis of that objectless wanting to be the central conflict, to emanate from the grain in the image, an ache that would bring the whole film to a grinding halt, to an end that was all-consuming in its emptiness. I love that passage so much. I, I think it reminds me of these like old descriptions of melancholia, like you know the Renaissance idea of melancholia, which was this this uh, impossible desire, this desire impossible to feel, you know, that this absolute uh, longing for anything and everything, you know. I do know, yes, and so how that so sort of the central conflict in the book is. If that's the desire, what does that look like? And in, you know, so um, for example, the next scene or the next section of the book it talks about the film Wanda by Barbara Loden. Um, and, you know, Wanda is the story about this woman who walks out of her life because she just feels like 
she doesn't know what she wants and she can't make her life work. And she just sort of goes from one thing to the next, you know, and um, sort of participates in each little scenario in the film long enough to be like, oh, that's not this either. Um, and so, uh, you know, and for Barbara Loden also, there was this very autobiographical kind of feeling of, uh, for the story, um, even though it was ostensibly about another woman, Barbara Loden plays the main character and it's really about her own life. And so, you know, it's, and also about just this, what, what is a character? Who is a character uh, when you don't know what she wants, when she's kind of lost? And um, I really think an essay is really about that. It's about getting lost on the page and, um, and sort of hoping and, and eventually discovering something you couldn't have anticipated otherwise. Um, which I think are the best stories that are sort of in a way about failure or about the inability to sort of grasp, grasp onto anything. Um, and, and I feel like your book also does that, Hasmina, like there's, there's a sort of loneliness and solitude, even though your book is much more peopled with friends and um family members, uh, people that you're on the journey with, people at art residencies with you. There's this sort of solitude and this sort of searching quality um, that I think, you know, our books have in common. Um, and, you know, I just, I don't know, do you have, I, I, without coming up with a perfect question for you, I, I love that about your book. And I, I wonder if you have more to add yeah, I, I think that, yes, desire is a central character in both books, right? Like in yours, I, I really like the idea that what you want is desire itself, right? It's like a desiring desire or something like that. And, um, and my book, I think, is also about impossible desires, you know, wanting to go back to, to a place, to a time that is... Uh, that never was or that is only in your memory which is also like saying that it never was because you know we know that memory is fiction memory is, is lies in a way and um and this idea of moving toward the lighthouse which is it's a it's a symbol of desire as well you know something that makes us move towards something um but once you get it once you're in the lighthouse it disappears because once you once you fulfill desire it disappears, you know? Desire is, is while, while the lack is there. And, um, and also this idea that, that I think the character in my book is moving toward lighthouses, is always searching for lighthouses and trying to find out why. She's, she's like instinctive, instinctively attracted toward lighthouses and is writing about that, why lighthouses, if they are so uh, corny in a way, if they are so common in a way, if they are so evident in a way, um, what, why does she keep going and returning to lighthouses? What, what is it about them? And I think that's sort of like one of the main questions in the book, yeah. Yeah, I totally relate to that. And, and I, think, I think about um, various passages in my book where I'm encountering other characters, for example, this police officer in Detroit Lakes 
Minnesota, who sort of led the investigation into to Takako Kanishi's death. And I went back, you know, while I was writing the book and reviewed all the tapes that I shot of interviews with him. And I can see how clearly he is trying to discourage me from pursuing the story <laughs> in a very kind way. I, I, the people I met on that journey were all so kind to me, but he's sort of like, what is here for you? The, the, this, this woman, she, you know, it really looks like she committed suicide. The, the, you know, stories that were published in the newspaper were not accurate in my estimation and, you know, kind of like set this down and, and it's sort of, so, so part of the, but the character continues on. It's like, she's pulled on by something. And part of it is, yeah, trying to understand. And I think that's, that is sort of what obsession does to you is you think like, if I can just distill down to its essence, exactly what it is that's, that is, you know, attracting me, maybe I can, you know, move on and be done with it. I think it was Jeff Dyer at the end of out of sheer rage, his book about D.H. Lawrence, where he says, you know, you write about a subject to be done with it, to try and be, you know, finished with it, to to wrap it up. And and I think for for a true obsession that it's it's only when you realize that that is absolutely impossible and never going to happen that you move on. Yes, definitely. That is so beautiful. I love it. <laughs> Wait a second. I had a question for you and I forgot it. Um, yeah, so not a question, but a comment. <laughs> like, uh, also, this, this obsession that I don't know if it happens to you, but when I look back on my book, when I, when I reread it, um, I think it was about lighthouses and it was not about lighthouses. Like lighthouses were a pretext. Um, they were like this idea of desire, something that makes you move towards something. But then what it was really about, it was about the journey. It was about the process and everything I didn't know I would encounter on the way. You know, that's the thing about travels and the, about writing as a process that, that is so exciting that in the end, it's not about getting to that final page that maybe you've thought about that that was going to be the end, but everything you found out on the way. Does that happen to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, let me think about how I want to answer that. Um, I think especially because, um, I mean, I think I knew all along that I was asking these questions about Takako's character, but I was really, and I think I said that in the passage I read, they're, they're really questions I was trying to understand about myself. And so there's this, there's this movement or this pull of another character, or in your case, another subject that's pulling you along, but the process that that you're engaged in, the creative process is really a process of trying to bump up against something that will illuminate these bigger questions that you have that are really about your own desire, your own character, your own motivations, and maybe your own 
you know, in our, in our case, I guess, heartbreak and, you know, sort of sadness and, and trying to bump up against something that will, in your case, shed light, you know, it's like literally shed light into the darkness. And, and so it, it's, it's like an excuse for the journey to happen, uh, to sort of choose side of yourself. And I think maybe in my case, but maybe also in yours, that wasn't something I realized at the time. It was something that looking back, back clearly see that and that was, I think, when the book became possible, when I could clearly see that this wasn't so much a book about Takako Konishi as it was about Takako Konishi holding up a like a mirror to my own character um, to, you know, help help me understand sort of what was happening here. And when did you decide it was going to be a book and not a film? Was there a, like a turning point, like a special moment answer to your question but yeah the, I mean the the thing was I had stopped trying to make the film and then I the university and that has an MFA in creative writing and I started taking classes for fun and lo and behold the obsession resurfaced and all of the things that I was writing were still trying to answer the same questions still telling the story about Takako Konishi and I didn't think necessarily at first that I would do anything with professors in the program were all very interested in this material and really encouraged me and so you know really at first I was thinking why not you know I'll just what's the harm in continuing to pursue this? And, and then of course the obsession took over and it became a book. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I also ask because one of the things I love most about your book is the way that the languages of filmmaking and literature intertwine, combine and create a dialogue in the book itself, you know? And I think it's, that's so, That's so beautiful because without doing exactly that, you're, you're reflecting on the literature in filmmaking and the filmmaking in literature. No, what's, what's there that, that between the two disciplines? Yeah, and also sort of like what a book or an essay can do, like what kind of voice, what kind of author a book or an essay uh, can have that maybe a screenplay or a film can't have and vice versa. I mean, the there's a way that the filmic elements allow me to sort of spin these different fictions within the context of a nonfiction book. Uh, so it really is sort of both fiction and nonfiction film and book. And I really liked having the option to have all of those ways of approaching the subject. And um, yeah, I feel like you do a similar thing by bringing in, um, you know, all these different great books throughout, like through like throughout literature and all of these voices and all of these perspectives that you bring into the lighthouse that In some ways, there's this, uh, the form of your book just amazes me because you talk about sort of the, the different uh, um, sort of rhythmic signals of the various lighthouses. And I feel like that's somehow echoed in the fragments of your book and this sort of like 
like you're transmitting this signal and the spaces in between all the little fragments. And um, I do think that like both of our forms are informed by these other things that we're writing about, if that makes sense. Yes, definitely. And um, I think for me, rather than filmmaking, which I also love, but I'm not an expert, uh, it was more about um, visual art and collages and the way in which you can, uh, if you write a fragmentary book, you can almost feel the fragments as if they were objects. You can almost move them around as if they were the objects of a collection. And also lighthouses have, have always been collected, you know, little figures of lighthouses. There, there are many people that collect uh, things that have to do with lighthouses. And um, so the idea of collages and collections in, in, in a very visual way was very present when I was thinking about the structure of the book and also when I was creating the structure because I, I used this uh, word processor that had sort of um, post-its that you could move around literally and create sort of like a collage with these little fragments. And that really helped me because it was very difficult to create the order for these. And, um, and I, was, I was very conscious of what, what my intention was and what I was moving around and what just happened uh, out of sheer luck, the, you know, sometimes two fragments that I had moved around came together out of luck and I would say, this works. This, this, I hadn't thought about this and it, and it works. <laughs> so maybe you could tell us a bit about what was your, your process like for creating this also, also collage-like structure. Yeah, I mean, I really resonate with what you said. I mean, both, I think that space and juxtaposition are a huge part of both of our books, that there are the there's there are these meanings created through the collision of different fragments or different bits of material. Um, and and the felt space in between them is is really important. For me, it's like a, a film reference, almost like a, you know, the way film was edited and and then there was I feel like I don't know about you but I feel like I wrote maybe a thousand more pages of material that are actually in the book and part of it was it just didn't fit there wasn't an interesting collision that happened no matter how many times there were these pieces of the book that I loved that I kept trying to put in different places and then finally it was like no I mean the form kind of and that, that sort of need to be excited about the juxtaposition really created the book in the end and did a lot of the, I don't want to say it did the editing for me because it was like you said, a lot of work to deal with all this material and, and move it around. And I didn't have software. I, I really had cards and pictures and bits of screenplay and that I, you know, my whole house was taken over with bits of manuscript at different times. Um, uh, so I'm very excited about the software for the next project. But um, but yeah, I, I do think that uh, the collision and the space and the juxtaposition uh, are so important in understanding what fits, what sort of brings life to the book and to the form. Yes, and you've talked about film editing, I think, which also has to do with this process, right? I don't know much about it, but it feels a bit like it. 
Yeah. I mean, when I started learning to make films, it was on 16 millimeter film. And so you go out and you shoot all this film and you cut it into shots, which then hang inside of a, inside of an editing bin that or several editing bins that you're rolling around and each shot has like a label on it. And then, you know, you hold it up and you look at it and you think this will go next, this will go next. And then you're pulling bits, you know, oh, that doesn't fit or I want to trim a little bit off. And I really did think of editing the book like that. Uh, very similar, just a different type of material, but the same, the same process of, of, you know, cutting on the action kind of and moving to the next thing and, and wanting, wanting to keep the pace moving uh, and, and things like that. <laughs> I, I really related to, to this idea of what you had to let go. Um, for me, I, I traveled to several more lighthouses than the ones that are in the book, but not all of them fitted in the book at the end. And there was this, this lighthouse, which is actually, I would say my favorite lighthouse in the world. And I, I went to it shortly bef before this book was published. And it's a lighthouse in Chile, in an island that is called Magdalena Island. It's at the tip of the world, like the, so what do you say, like the, the most south, sort Southerly? southernest or something like that <laughs> well just at the end of the world there's this beautiful small island where the only thing that you have is a lighthouse and a bunch of penguins <laughs> that live in the in the in the island um and they are so amazing so this is like a like a utopia for me like a I don't know, a dream place, but it was everything. I mean, this is for me, it's a very dark book. And this was such a, such a picturesque scene, you know, so, so beautiful. Everything was just, um, sorry, it was a noise. <laughs> um, every, everything was too perfect in that, in that travel and in that scene. And it just didn't fit in the, in the book. So I, I think I wrote about it in the in the thank you notes. <laughs> the end, like, uh, I couldn't add that, but I, I couldn't let go of it. And um, and yeah, there's all of this material that you want to find a place, and and sometimes you just don't, right? Yeah, sometimes you. There were even things. Uh... The very, very final edit after you're not supposed to be able to delete to delete anything. I was still like cutting out a few things that just sometimes it was like the voice had shifted. Somehow it wasn't even that the event itself wasn't quite right. It was that the voice of the narrator was somehow seemed to be speaking from either another point in, like place in the book or it's amazing how once you or I was amazed at how once you start honing the form down um, yeah suddenly things that you love or that you would assumed were central to the book <laughs> sometimes just have to be let they, they you actually realize that they aren't central and actually they they need to go 
Um, and I did the same thing where I cheated and I put some things back in the notes that I got. <laughs> By the way, in case you're really interested. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I even thought about doing like a like a blog or something about everything else that has turned out after the book w was published because I don't know if, if it happened to you, but once the book was published, everyone started coming to me with, I have this beautiful book about lighthouses you haven't read. I have this beautiful film. I have, you know, so, so suddenly I have all of this information that is not in the book that could have been in the book, but I don't know what to do with it. It's, yeah, it's oppressive at times. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I definitely have a little bit of that or, you know, people explaining to me uh, because there's so much about the movie Fargo, too. Right. I, I mean, the it's a great film and the obsession with Fargo continues to this day. And so there's so much material about the movie Fargo. Takako Konishi, if she was obsessed with the movie Fargo, is not alone. Um <laughs> But at a certain point you need to, or I found that I need, I have not even watched the Fargo TV series because I just felt like, no, uh, you know, part of that thing that we were talking about, it's time to wrap this project up. I need to draw a line in the sand and say, because it could go on forever. I've spent a good enough chunk of my life on this. And now everything that like happened can be in the book and anything that from this point on is barred from the book. <laughs> So what are you working on? Maybe to wrap up, we could talk oh. about this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing right now? It's a good question. It's it's also a fragmentary book and it's a little bit, it's very much in the early stages, but it has to do sort of with what we were talking about, about the space that exists in between stories and specifically in between um, a couple of stories. One is a story by Julio Cortazar about the axolotl, um, native to Mexico City, um, yes. and a long time <laughs> obsession of mine, the ax, both the axolotl and the story. I write a lot about Julio Cortazar in my, in my book. Um, and then the artist, Alan Capro, uh, <laughs> seemingly totally unrelated, related only in my mind, the work of Alan Capro and sort of the the his ideas about there being no separation between art and life and the sort of ongoingness uh of art making and then sort of this like i said like try the yearning to sort of get to the spaces in between stories um <laughs> we'll wow. see how it goes <laughs> oh it sounds amazing I really want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> and what are you working on, Yasmina? So I've just finished uh, a novel, which is the most novelistic novel I've ever written. <laughs> and it's the story of three friends, really. It's the story of a friendship um, of three young women who travel together and who uh, stitch together. Like it's uh, the novel is called Cross Stitch, and it's also a bit of an essay about cross stitching in the world of women around the world. 
Yes. Oh my God, that sounds amazing. I just bought your book, Cuerpo Extraño, and I cannot wait to start it. I'm, 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 I'm I maybe I'm in competition for being your biggest fan. Oh no, Donna, me too. <laughs> and I, I, and I have to watch your films. You have to let me know how to do that. Yeah. Okay, well. <laughs> Lots of exciting things coming from both of you. Thank you so much. This has been a, just a delight. It's been so great listening to the two of you um, find all of the connections between these two beautiful books. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Maddie, thank you so much for having us. This was so fun. It was wonderful. Thank you. Um, before we go, I just wanted to see if you had anything else you might want to share with our listeners, any last thoughts or upcoming events you want to let them know about? No? Not really. I'm going to be in the, in the Annapolis, Annapolis Book Festival or something. I don't even know the name right, so we better don't say it. <laughs> no, you got it right. Annapolis, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So maybe we can see, we can see each other there. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be, let's see, in conversation with Josh Ostergaard, another coffee house author on April 15th with subtext books. And I hope I'm getting that date right. It may be April 14th. Yes. It's a Wednesday. Um, and the day before that, I'll be on Right On Radio, KFAI. It's a local radio station here in Minneapolis, but it, they also have a podcast. So um, I'll put links to that on my website, which is janalarson.net. Awesome. Thank you. And Hasmina, if people want to find you on the internet, where should they look? Um, so I'm in Twitter as Hastronomia. I will write it down right now because um and yes and you can also check out um my instagram i would say which is the same the same name yeah <laughs> excellent well thank you both again um the books we were talking about today are real bay and on lighthouses you can order them both from skylight books we highly encourage it i mean if you've listened to this whole conversation you're gonna love the rest of the books so um, check them out. And my guests again were Hasmina Barrera and Jana Larson. Thank you both so much for being here. It's been just a treat. And I hope we get to welcome you to the store in person in the coming year. Yay. Me too. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I would love crossed. that. Yeah. <laughs> so nice to see you and meet you. And um, let's hope, yeah, the next time we can see each other in person. You have a friend and a house here in Mexico if you everyone to come oh likewise here in minneapolis i'd love to have both of you <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much well i love the idea of us all taking journeys to see each other after we've had this conversation about traveling and journeys so it's a nice way to wrap this up all right so i'm gonna um conclude thank you all so much for listening um and catch you on the flip side keep reading Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.